business of flat circle. <laughs> Let's just jump right into it. Let's just jump into it. Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing today? We're doing The Power of the Dog. The Power of the Dog. It just came out on Netflix. Uh, but before you do that, Farm Fresh, you want to talk about another film that you saw. Oh, yeah. I finally saw Spencer. Ta-da. Been talking about it a few episodes now. I'm like three or four weeks behind the curve. I do wonder, why was it so intriguing to you? Like, why were you anticipating it so largely? Uh, two things. The way it was shot, like the way the trailer made it seem to be both in tone and in style mm-hmm. of the camera work and just the entire vibe they were going for. But also, as soon as I found out it was a Johnny Greenwood score, that is one of the things for me that immediately pulls me into a project because score is a huge thing for me music in a film it's like almost as important as like you know the other big things like director and cinematographer because every film i think that writing yeah writing being the goes without saying for me because that's like it is sort of the epicenter the foundation for for me anyway but any movie the greenwood scores is incredibly distinct in my mind you know, especially against the deluge of other stuff that comes out these days. Mm-hmm. He did uh, You Were Never Really Here, the Joaquin Phoenix movie from a few years ago. Really like that. He scored Phantom Thread, which, you know, regardless of how people feel about it, it's a pretty unique movie. And then so this year, what I did not know, I had another double feature that tied nicely together, which it seems to be a thing that happens to me recently, is that I'll watch two movies that I did not expect to go well together. And for me, it was Spencer and Power the Dog. Both were scored by Johnny Greenwood and had a very similar tone in this intense and oppressive pressure uh, that is writing the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I watched this with Allie and she mentioned the score whilst watching the movie. Yeah. She spoke and said, this music is really, and like she couldn't describe it. I could tell she was really tense. Yes. And I said, anxiety inducing. She goes, exactly. <laughs> That's a Johnny Greenwood score. Yeah. So Spencer, I really enjoyed. I'm super glad I saw it in a theater. It's important to note that- <laughs> That's a slight against me because he knows that I probably won't see it in a theater. No, no. I actually wasn't thinking about you at all when I said that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, I only say that because- there's so much coming out right now, and for me, I have to like, you know, especially with the holidays budget. Yeah, you got to pace yourself. Budget my time. But Spencer was something that I really wanted to see, and I actually don't know or hadn't known it beforehand anything about the royal family. I, much to my chagrin, have not watched The Crown yet. Uh, and I was also too young to remember the death of Diana, and really I've never paid attention to any of the British monarchy. So I was intrigued by this movie for that reason, uh, and it is not a biopic, unlike stuff we've reviewed recently it is i think they described it as a fable and it says in the in the opening there's a title card that says this is not this is like a a story inspired by a true story yeah but it was really good like i said it would swing back and forth between this incredibly tense and anxiety inducing kind of like a safety brothers tempo there are plenty of scenes in spencer where it's like you wait with bated breath and it's like a nightmare like so much of the film you know, it's the whole thing revolves around Diana's anxiety. Yeah, this is like ten years into her relationship with Charles, and it takes place over the span of three days. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure on her at Christmas, and she just doesn't want to be there. Like the only warmth that she has in that entire environment is her two kids. She has a close friend on the staff whose name is Maggie, played by Sally Hawkins, and everything else is just like a nightmare for her. And so, some of the film actually dips into like horror 
which is really cool, which is why I loved it a lot. And she's constantly seeing visions of Anne Boleyn as like a metaphorical representation of... Was it horror or was it more like dread and, uh, and like fear? It was that. Okay. It was like the A24 horror. But it wasn't like... Because there were no jump scares. There's, well, there. two, there's two different kinds of horror. We say this a lot. Yeah. But just so people know, there's horror with jump scares and more, you know, classical styles of horror. Like and then there is what the auteurs call horror adjacent. Yeah artsy stuff it's a sense of dread yeah but there are a couple scenes in particular where it just builds to a crescendo and it's incredibly who's this directed by it was pablo lorraine i think who did jackie oh right right right. but yeah the direction was great the cinematography was incredible it played a lot with framing and blocking and had a very desaturated look that you know mirrors the hopelessness and and, england yeah it's not just yeah it is it is england but also like it, it works well. The hopelessness in England. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Kristen Stewart was great, too. I She's have, been good lately, I, I have to say. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the work she's done in the last few years. I saw that Christmas movie she made last year. That was really good. She really perfectly captured that sadness and that melancholy that, again, I th- I'm pretty sure this whole account was fictionalized, but it, the essence of it is true, mm-hmm. and that it was this kind of tragedy you know from the beginning and i having had not known the relationship between charles and diana which is just crazy there was an incredible line i watched a clip from the crown right afterwards where charles is arguing with diana in that show yep and he says like it's a it's a grotesque misalliance or something like he had nothing to do with it he wishes he had nothing to do with it but it kind of just you know yeah because he was was an arranged marriage or something um or at least that's the way he said it in that show it's complex yeah. He was in love with this woman, madly in love, and the queen and the family prohibited it. And then he found this girl that kind of fell in line with what the family wanted. And, you know, to try to please his family, he brought her around and all of his family was like, yeah, she's awesome. Marry that girl. <laughs> and so he kind of just did it, still being in love and in contact with Camilla. Camilla. Yeah. Anyway, it just snowballed from there. Unfortunately, it's, it's such a crazy. Yeah. I was sad. Yeah. It's it's so it's so heavy and weighty and that's probably I mean from how you're describing it that's probably what they wanted you to feel is that that large sense of weight and sadness that really was the story of what her life turned out to be. Yeah. Probably up into the point of the interview that you and I were talking about and then mm-hmm. and then her with Martin Bashir unfortunate timely demise. I just wanted to say the cinematographer for that for Spencer was Claire Mathon who shot Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I really liked. Yes, you did. For 2019, that was probably top three of the year, like behind. You've Midsummer talked about that many House. times on this podcast. Have I? Just, ta- just so you know, yeah. Well, there it is again, and I've seen it as well for the last. Per time. your recommendation, it is a very good movie. And then, much like he's describing Spencer to be. Yeah, and so connecting that to Power of the Dog, a nice little segue was the Johnny Greenwood score, which mm-hmm. had the tense moments from Power of the Dog. But he also did this funny little like jazzy noir motif in mm-hmm. Spencer, which was really interesting, especially for like, it kind of it gave me like bebop vibes. I guess anytime I hear jazz now, it makes me think of bebop where it's like, it induces Recency this, bias. this feeling of, it's kind of like lackadaisical, like blase, mm-hmm. nonchalance. Sure. Because Diana has this very nihilistic attitude yeah. inside of this story yeah let's talk about the power of the dog because that's the one i saw i saw this one too <laughs> <laughs> well no I, I mean out of the ones we're talking about right now that's the movie that i saw well it's funny because last week i think both of those movies i hadn't seen yet 
but yeah, I had to go. I had, I, I had to do it. I can contribute to this, but I don't know how to begin a conversation about this movie. Ooh, I, I can't wait to talk about this movie. I'm so pumped what on is, the power of the dog. What is the power of the dog, Stephen? Well, let me read to you from scripture. Oh, good. This uh, verse in scripture, <laughs> today, today's Bible verse, <laughs> comes from Psalm twenty-two twenty. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. That was Psalm what? Psalm twenty-two twenty. Wow. Twenty-two twenty. This movie is directed by a woman named Jane Campion, who has been around for quite a while, directed a bunch of movies, and then directed some TV stuff. Took about 10 to 11 to 12 years off from directing film, and then kind of this is her debut back into directing movies. And it was praised to be sort of an indie hit, darling, prize-winning film that Netflix seemed to buy and then distribute. So it came out like a week week ago, and it was marketed to be this ambiguously gay commentary on masculinity uh, set in like a Western setting starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, <laughs> and Cody Smith McPhee, who, if you don't know, played Nightcrawler in the X-Men relaunch movies. And I'm sorry, it seems to be all of those things in the marketing material trailers and such, but with this intensely ominous tone that kind of made it unclear about what the movie actually is about. And I surmised a couple ways that this movie might play out just from thinking about what the characters could potentially be and what could potentially happen. But lo and behold, this movie is maybe one of my favorite movies that has come out this year. I'm very excited about it for a number of reasons, but... We should probably maybe say from this point, spoilers, because it's, it's sort of hard to talk about this movie without talking about the movie yeah, and what happens in the movie, that the story and the plot. And uh, if you haven't watched it, go watch it and then come back. Yeah. <laughs> or don't. But one of my projections was that because Benedict Cumberbatch plays this sort of stern, overcompensatingly masculine cowboy it's set in the early 1900s in Montana, and there's this sort of weak-looking, sort of maybe potentially effeminate young boy who is the son of Kirsten Dunst, and then Jesse Plemons, who's like the villain in everything these days. You might know from Breaking Bad or Black Mirror or, most recently, Jungle Cruise. He plays another character who seems to want to get into a relationship with Kirsten Dunst's character. And he's Benedict's brother. That was actually unclear. I think I think they called each other their brother because they had such a tight bond, but I think they had a working relationship that went back all the way to 25 years prior when they had started working together with, with that other guy. Interesting. And they, they just called each other brother. And that I'll talk about that in a second. The only reason I thought they were actually brothers is because of the strange re- interaction between Jesse Plemons' parents and him. It seemed like that he was like a, a son that wanted nothing to do with them. No, I think that was that was actually their son. And Benedict Cumberbatch was like a friend like a, that had been around for a long time. Mm, I see. Anyway, so that was the setting from the trailer. That was what you could kind of think through and be like, okay, so what, what would happen? Like the worst thing that could happen is Cody Smith-McPhee gets killed by Benedict Cumberbatch's character. That's one obvious route. The other route was that I was thinking at some point, Cody may come out 
as gay or non-binary. And then Cumberbatch would be like, yeah, you know, and then it would just be another Brokeback Mountain. But my, my kind of projection was that Benedict was going to come out. The whole story would be about sort of his acceptance and it would be sort of a personal journey about his acceptance of his actual feelings of being a gay man instead of rejecting it, which is what was very clear in the trailer that he was trying to, like I said, overcompensatingly. So be like a very specific type of masculine. Anyway, uh, it was kind of that though, is kind of what I guessed. But what actually happened was that essentially they go to work on this ranch. Cumberbatch is a dick to Cody McPhee. Jesse Plemons sort of falls in love really fast with Kirsten Dunst and then they get married. Cumberbatch, who his name is Phil in the movie, gets really jealous of their relationship. And it's already established by this time that Cumberbatch kind of doesn't like weak men or weak boys or he already has made fun of Cody Smith McPhee's character by this point. And Kirsten Dunst really has a hard time with that because uh, her husband had died and he seemed to be more of a sensitive guy. There's a lot of interesting ambiguity with her dead husband. Yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity throughout everything. Benedict Cumberbatch has already made fun of Cody Smith McPhee up to this point, which has really taken a toll on Kirsten Dunst's character. Anyway, Cumberbatch, who's this kind of a hard-ass cowboy, he keeps kind of escaping to this meadow uh, up the mountain. This hidden glen. Or nearby, where that seems to be like an escape for him physically, mentally, emotionally. Sexually. Sexually. (laughs) Uh, And he seemed to be reflecting on this relationship that he had with this man that had died that he really seemed to adore uh named buff bronco henry bronco henry and there's a lot of sexual innuendo with him like touching his bronco henry's saddle he almost like idolizes it in a way and he sneaks off to that meadow and he touches himself and takes a bath and rubs mud on himself (laughs) <laughs> and and it's very clear that Benedict Cumberbatch, that he is the gay character. And Cody Smith-McPhee, like the way that I was projecting from the trailer, never really turned out to be the gay character. He might be gay. Yeah, he could be. But he seemed to more just be like a, a sensitive, but also very intelligent young man who was studying to become a doctor. And, Potentially um, psychopathic. <laughs> but yeah, potential the, serial the killer vibes. <laughs> yeah, potential serial killer vibes for sure. Anyway, things begin to escalate in a very, again, anxiety-inducing way. And it's sort of unclear what's actually happening. At some point, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's character befriends Cody Smith McPhee. And he's like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to train you. And you kind of start thinking, is he going to take him out to the hills and kill him? Is he going to take him out to the hills and maybe rape him? Like, you don't really know what's going to happen. And that sort of intensity, that ambiguous intensity is the thing that kind of sits on the whole movie while you're watching it. It's sort of like this cloud that just sits above you the whole time. For some reason, Jesse Plemons kind of disappears for like half of the movie in the middle. He has a job to do. And you kind of think that like he was going to be some like a lot more villainous because you've seen him be a villain a hundred times, but he ends up just kind of being um, there. A nobody. Yeah. No one. It's kind of a void of, Jesse Plummett. <laughs> so, but Kirsten Dunst starts to drink a lot and she's appearing to go crazy. She starts to do and say a lot of really crazy things and she keeps waking up every day saying, I'm sick, I'm sick, I'm not well. Benedict Cumberbatch, he kills these cattle and skins them and dries out their, you know, leather hide and 
he does it and then because he enjoys to set them on fire or something it was really unclear again well it's it was pretty clear but his it's like a power and control thing mm-hmm. he he will create the hides just to set them on fire yeah he won't give them away because he he needs this this display of power and control yeah anyway i should say at this point there has been a mention of anthrax at some point throughout the movie as someone was handling an animal they said that there could have been anthrax amongst that animal yeah because the animal was sick oh and cody smith mcphee at some point when he returns home he takes this little cute bunny and kills it and dissects it to practice his doctor witchcraft that was such a shock that was yeah which reminds me that servant girl was thomas and mckenzie yeah thomas and mckenzie had no idea she was randomly showed up in this she was just in soho and jojo rabbit last year but anyway so (laughs) cumberbatch actually seems to start to care for cody smith mcphee in a weird way in a weird way he starts to make him this rope what is the rope Stephen? (laughs) the rope is made of leather but what does it mean (laughs) is the rope just a rope we'll talk We'll talk. <laughs> we'll talk after. No, I'm just, let me just finish the story. This is taking okay, way too I'm long. Sorry. I just want to talk about it. And Kirsten Dunst sees this Native American stop by the farm, and he asks if they have any hides. And the homemaker lady was like, no, because these belong to Cumberbatch. Anyway, Kirsten runs out in a very sickly manner, runs up to the Native American and says, take all the hides. And the Native American does. And she gets some some gloves and falls down. Again, very weird. And then, again, seemingly very sick, very ill. And then <laughs> that day, Cumberbatch comes back. He sees the hides are gone. He comes back from like a little road trip with Cody Smith McPhee. Sees the hides are gone. He's almost done making the rope at this point. And Cody Smith McPhee's like, hey, I have extra hide to finish the rope now that your hides are gone. And Cumberbatch is like, yeah, will you watch me make the rope? <laughs> and again, Cody Smith McPhee's like, of course. So he spends all night making this rope and he's putting his hands in the hide. This hide is most likely from the rabbit that he killed. No, I think that was from the cow that he skinned later in the film. He didn't. He went out into the boonies and did an autopsy on a Oh, that's right. That's cow. right. That actually makes a lot of sense. Because Cody Smith McPhee has been collecting dead animals and practicing on them, he had some extra hide. And so, so Cumberbatch starts to make this rope to finish the rope. He's putting his hands in like a water to stretch the leather and make it malleable and he somehow at some point got a cut on his hand and so he's touching the water he's touching the hide he's he's got a cut on his hand he wakes up the next morning he's sick very sick like he has some gnarly infection jesse plemons who may or may not be his brother takes him to the doctor and anyway cumberbatch dies and then a lot of people are sad because i also forgot to mention that cumberbatch was said to be a very intelligent man who had graduated from Yale. Yeah. And then it cuts to Cody Smith McPhee with gloves on, very carefully touching the rope and then kind of putting it under his bed. And then he looks out his window and Kirsten Dunst is now seemingly fine. She kisses Jesse Plemons and Cody Smith McPhee smiles and turns around, which is, okay, that's the end of the movie, but which leads you to believe that all of that, Kirsten Dunst, acting crazy, getting rid of the hide, Cody Smith McPhee, having extra hide that's infected with potential infection, anthrax, was all part of this plan to get rid of Cumberbatch's character. You think Kirsten Dunst was in on it? Yeah. Really? 100%. What? Yeah. Fascinating take. I think, okay, I mean, that's my take. Yeah, that's my take. So the whole thing, the whole thing, 
I think her whole act of like getting drunk and acting crazy was all ruse. Really? Yeah. Because the movie starts off with a quote from Cody McPhee saying, essentially, this is paraphrasing, I'll do anything to protect my mother. Like, what kind of man would I be if I didn't pro- help help my mother, I save my if mother? I did not yeah. save her, yeah. And that's the whole movie. That's why this movie, I think, is honestly like a perfect film. It's like a perfect movie because it tells you what it is. Mm-hmm. And then it leads you through this extremely morally ambiguous winding road. And then it ends with sort of a plot twist that isn't actually a plot twist because it told you what it was doing when it started the movie. That is a good movie. Yep. Yeah. It was there. Yes. It's 100%. I was blown away that like, I just went on this journey. I felt all these feelings. I had no idea where it was going to go. I had a lot of presumptions and assumptions of what might happen, but the best twist is one that makes perfect sense. Yeah. It was entirely obvious the whole time. And, and the reason I love this movie is because this movie is a commentary on strength and what is actual true strength. You know, and you can take that down multiple different avenues. You can take it to be like, what is masculinity? You know, what is toxic masculinity or what is actually strong? Is it going to Yale, having the status, having the certificate that tells you that you're smart? And so everybody thinks that you're smart. And so you have this status. Like, is it status itself that makes you a strong person? What is success at that point? You know, is it success? Does success make you strong? Is it acting tough? Is, does that make you strong while not being able to express your vulnerabilities? Or can strength come from a more meek, weak type of person who appears to be weak, but actually has a quiet strength? And I loved, I just loved how this movie played out. I loved the turn of events. I loved the story was just beautiful. Even the parts that were exploring sexuality, apart from it just being amazingly and beautifully shot, edited, the color of it, the music. But then even to take a step further, I think Jane Campion, being a woman director in Hollywood, probably really heavily related with this story about strength and what actual strength is. And then just knocked it out of the park with this movie. I just thought it was not only a statement of like I said, of strength, but it was also kind of her subtle way of making a statement about what makes an actual person strong, you know, especially with her being a female director in Hollywood. There's like a blossoming female Hollywood half like coming up right now, and I'm super pumped for it. You talking about like female? Just more like more women having roles, like titular roles in both in front of the camera and behind the camera. Yeah. And I'm super pumped diversity coming up big i mean i love i mean yeah reese witherspoon is another great example like i love everything she's produced and is producing from big little lies to the morning show and yeah little flowers everywhere i didn't know anything about jane campion because yeah she wrote this as well right based on a novel it's yeah it's it's based off of a novel yeah and the novel has additional story elements that are not present from what i know in the film for instance backstory adds extra dimensions even still, even more dimensions to the characters, like the fact that I think in the novel it was Phil that had killed or driven Rose's husband to suicide or that he had killed him directly, I'm not sure. Oh, wow. Which completely adds just another angle to the story. But yeah, there's so much depth and subtlety to this film and cleverness in the script. It took me a little bit to warm up to the way the story was being told in the beginning because the characters seem very like, peculiar 
Like Jesse Plemons is barely a human being. He's just kind of drifting along and then falls into love with Rose and Benedict Cumberpatch. Initially you think that this guy is just a, some kind of meathead, mm-hmm. you know, cowboy. Mm-hmm. But the film does this fascinating thing where it plays on your expectations and your preconceptions of these characters. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's revealed that Benedict or Phil rather is like a graduate of Yale. Mm-hmm. The whole time you're thinking Jesse Plemons is going to do something and he does nothing the whole movie. <laughs> you think Rose the whole time is going to do something and then she, she doesn't. And this rivalry that is like between her and Benedict turns into Cody Smith McPhee versus Benedict. And there's just levels and levels of like... And the subversion with Cody Smith McPhee's character, because you think he's yeah. this weak... Yeah, this meek... Little pansy kid that uh-huh. like is making flowers out of paper. And then he ends up being this like maybe... Very intelligent. M- murderer. Like I, you know, like possibly a, yeah, psychopathic, yeah, yeah. Po- yeah, or not possibly, but actually psychopathic. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, there's a massive subversion there, and like the conversation around him literally murdering because he knew you know that the anthrax or whatever was in the water or the solution for the hide that killed Benedict. None of which is to speak of the incredible sexual tension in multiple scenes between <laughs> between Benedict and Cody Smith McPhee. Yeah. It is in, it is insane. I, I the thought, caressing of the saddle into the, the the winding of the rope, and you're just like, what is happening? Yeah, well, I think you know exactly what's happening. I knew, yeah, I knew. But but to be honest, that's why I think I think Cody Smith McPhee. I mean, regardless of whether where his actual sexual preferences lie, I think he was playing Cumberbatch the whole time. Yes, I think when is he just kept he never shut up about Bullhead Smith or whatever his name was Bronco Henry Bronco Henry <laughs> <laughs> and. Bronco Henry and Cody Smith McPhee's like, did you were you naked when this happened? You know, like he's really I think was just playing him along to oh, yeah to try to get him to actually be like, well, yeah, it was cold and calculated. Yeah, but I'm fascinated with your take on Rose as not only complicit with this, but like as part of the design of Cody Smith McPhee's plan. Yeah, because at no point in I the story, I don't know how you could have thought otherwise. I mean, what, she, well, okay. what, what did you think? The whole point of the story to me was that she was this woman she was cuckoo for cocoa puffs. She was not at any point cuckoo for cocoa puffs. She's just very soft and sensitive. That is her character from the beginning. And it is possible because it's revealed through dialogue that her dead husband was a drinker and abusive and that he may have abused her. Yeah. Potentially Cody Smith McPhee may have killed his father. Mm. That's speculation. But what we do know... Well, actually, that's really... I never thought about that, so... What we do know... Well done, Gabriel. Again, that's that's speculatory, if that's a word. But what we do know is that Rose is... Speculation. She hates the drink, or the only reason she begins to drink is because of the incredible... Like like I said with Spencer, this incredibly uh, oppressive atmosphere yeah. in Phil's house. And Phil literally drives her through uh, emotional abuse to the bottle... And she, because she, she is, uh, she's oh, very pure and warm yeah, and yeah, kind yeah. and she cannot handle. And this, this is most, I think, conveyed to the piano scene. Yes. And he, so he literally is tormenting her. That's her breaking point. Yeah. That's where she starts drinking. Yeah. And the rest of the film, she is just an alcoholic mess. Mm-hmm. And she, at no point is she aware of anything that's going on. All she knows is that she feels that Phil is a threat to her son in some capacity so what I'm thinking as a viewer is the moment she starts hitting the bottle, this is now Cody Smith McPhee versus Benedict. And Cody's probably going to do anything, probably resulting in someone's death, whether it's 
you know, Benedict or someone else to, he's going to try to save his mother from this. Cause that's like you said, in the beginning of the film, it's, it's the, the log line. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the entire driving course of this film is his, his care for his mother and his concern for her well-being. So I never at any point thought that she had anything to do with any of the events of the film. She was just being strung along the entire time. And I think the only reason she, you know, went with Jesse Plus, uh, Jesse Plemons in the first place is because she hated what she was doing. She also needed someone to not be alone. And Jesse Plemons seemed like a good guy. Yeah, he, a good guy, just completely void of... And he's such a... It's such an incredibly bizarre character because at no point in the story does Jesse Plemons, like, feel like... Like, it felt like Benedict was right, that he's he's an idiot. Like, in the purest sense of the word. Like, he, he's not smart. He just, he's, he's a, simp, a simple person who just doesn't want to be alone. And he can't even stand up to his brother, you know. Mm-hmm. The only thing I'm curious about is if, like, Cody Smith-McPhee had not killed Benedict or poisoned him, what would have happened, like, the next day? Because you feel that Benedict Cumberpatch was on a, a boiling point or a breaking point with his uh, rage against his hides being done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but that is the thing that made me or led me to think that she, Kirsten she, was in on it because or, she got rid of the hides. Even, even if Cody Smith McPhee said, Hey, I'm going to go out into the Hills with him. Can you get rid of these hides? You know, even if it was as simple as that, she, maybe she was unaware of Cody Smith McPhee's actual plan, but yeah, still, I don't think she, that's even, why she ran outside and she's like, I have to get rid of these hides, you know? Well, okay, so I don't think... She, first of all, she wasn't even aware of Cody McPhee's plans because she well, that's couldn't... That's what I just said. She couldn't even begin to comprehend that her son was anything but the meek boy that we expected. But also the Hyde's thing was just a spur of the moment, like final act of vengeance you against so? Phil. Yeah, that was... And I feel like that's... I don't know. I don't know. That's I, really, I really don't. the read because she didn't even know they were there until like the second that... uh you know, the housekeeper stumbles in and explains to her what the deal is with the hides. And she's like, this is the perfect, she wanted revenge. She wanted to hurt Phil. She all of a sudden thought, oh, these mean something to Phil, so I need to get rid of them. Yeah, it was right in the moment. And she's like, this is... Yeah. So, because she stumbles out there, she has nothing. I would love to watch it again to get a deeper understanding of the gloves at the end and what that symbolizes, because there's there's a fascinating focus on hands in this movie. Yeah, there is. You're right. Yeah, it's like Tarantino and feet or something. Yeah. But Cody Smith McPhee always yeah. had gloves on when he was dealing with something that he deemed like unsanitary. And so the dealing of the rope, him having gloves on, not touching the rope, was not only because it could have potentially had anthrax on it, but also because I think it was a way of saying, I don't want to touch this because it came from this person that I want nothing to do with because he's a... Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's sort of like a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. And it works really well too for Phil for this guy to be taken down in what seems like hubris because he's working with his hands. Mm-hmm. He's always barehanded. And there's this great scene earlier in the film where he's castrating the yeah. cows with his bare hands. And yeah. everybody's like, what is this guy's deal? This is crazy. Mm-hmm. So it felt like there's always this cathartic thing as a as an audience member when the hubris is what takes down. I forgot about that shot. It, it really that, like... That was a... He's just ripping cow's balls off, man. That tugged at the uh, the old uh, heart, Kajan, the, you know what I mean? The Cajones. The Cajones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This whole thing just felt like like a highlight reel for Benedict Cumberpatch because he is like the the tour de force that this movie, I think, really needed to succeed. Sure. He's always been good. Which is so funny because he's a posh British gentleman and he plays the rancher better than anyone else that I 
could have thought to have casted for this role specifically, especially in his physicality, because he's this kind of stringy guy. There are so many shots of him set against the backdrop of this Montana hilly skyline where he's in his crazy cowboy getup and he has like these really wide set hips because of the, sure. the cowboy's attire. Yeah, I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch, the first thing I ever saw him in was Sherlock, the British version, which is so good. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Yeah, I've seen the first three seasons. Oh, yeah, then yeah. You, you know. Um, and then and then I went and saw him in this play of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It was a, a live-action recording of Frankenstein. It starred two people, Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller, oh, yeah. who played the American version yes. of Sherlock. Yeah. And one was Frankenstein and then Frankenstein's monster. Uh-huh. And there was two showings. One was where one played the monster, one played Frankenstein. One was where the roles were reversed. I saw the one where Benedict Cumberbatch played Frankenstein's monster. And if you ever heard anything, I don't know if you know anything about Frankenstein, but it's all about humanity and a purpose of being. Mm-hmm. It's not so much that it's this classic monster with the bolts and the temples, you know, it's more about this person that becomes self-aware and then is trying to find purpose in life. And so the fear and the dread come from not having a reason to be alive. It's so fascinating. But I saw Cumberbatch play that role and I was like, this guy is next level. Like I already thought he was good in Sherlock, but to watch him perform like a live performance of Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster was like unreal. He was so good in it. He is fantastic. <laughs> and, then, and then now he's strange. Yeah, MCU is lucky to have him. I'm surprised. When he was cast in the Marvel Universe, I was like, I thought he was better than that, to be honest. I well, he, I think he likes to have fun. Sure. he For sure he does. A but good bit of fun. I was, I was surprised because he seemed very particular about the roles that he took. I mean, this is a great example. Like he's, he's playing something totally unique here that really shows off his acting chops and is completely unlike, apart from the fact that they're both American, Doctor Strange in any way, shape, or form. And yeah, I can't say enough good things about him. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I love him. Yeah. <laughs> And which is fitting for this film, I'm sure he would have loved me to love him. He man, when he was caressing Bronco Henry's saddle, it's just like I wish I was that saddle. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Are, yeah, you, are you coming out finally? No, I'm oh, not. <laughs> I'm not, man. <laughs> I'm not. One day, <laughs> one day soon. Never. <laughs> it's not something that's that's gonna happen. But you said Spencer's like up in your top five now of the year. Uh, I don't know about five, uh, certainly 10, but I feel like at the end of the year, there's so much good stuff that's coming out. What I'm speculating is that Mm -hmm. Macbeth, the Denzel Macbeth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That'll probably take the last of my top three behind Green Knight and Dune. But like thinking more about like the last duel and now Spencer, that could round out my top five, maybe. We'll see. I haven't seen either The Last Duel or Spencer yet this year, and I will eventually once I come around to it. But this movie, The Power of the Dog, is definitely in my top five of the year for sure. Easy. And I loved films we've seen like Nine Days and yeah. Green Knight was great, obviously. But this is, to me, this is like what filmmaking is all about, like this yeah. movie. And I would I, agree. I loved I loved every every tangible Part. and metaphysical thing about this movie yeah it's really good and i can't wait for power of the dog 2 <laughs> where we just see cody smith in the big city as a serial killer it's like, like home alone but like in the 1940s and 50s sure but 
check out Power of the Dog. It's free if you have Netflix or if you have a login to Netflix. It reminded me of Devil All the Time in, in a few ways. Like there's this like American quality to it. I don't yes. know if that makes any sense. No, you're right. And, and But there's also a feeling of sort of existential dread. Yeah. The whole time. Devil all the time. And it's also, I mean, it could be, it could just slide through as one of those understated films, but I could also see it because Netflix, the past like four or five years have historically had a seat in the best picture nomination race. I think that this could be either the one or one of the ones that gets Netflix a nomination this year. I don't know if they have any others. Oh, they have uh, don't look up coming out, but this year too. Oh yeah. <laughs> By the end of the year. So many things. Yeah, movies like this are why the streaming wars, I think, are ultimately like for the best in terms of it's a war. Because like Power of the Dog probably wouldn't have came into existence, right? If not for I don't know if Netflix bought it or produced it, but but it feel like this movie would have been lost to time if it had just been like a small theatrical release. And thanks to this distribution, you know, system, more mm-hmm. people are going to see it. I think more people are going to fall in love with it. Yeah. Thank you, Jane Campion. Thank yeah. you, Netflix. I'm excited, hopefully, to see more of Jane Campion's career going forward. And what better way to end a conversation about existential dread than with a Johnny Greenwood track? I hear it is. I hear it.